Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Today we're going to be talking with Jonathan Karlasuk of North Pine Management. He's the CEO and co-founding partner of a global consultancy of management practitioners turning insights into action. Love the phrase, insights into action. So he'll be touching on a number of topics, including the behavioral sciences and behavioral economics, which I find really deep and fascinating stuff, Lou. We're going to find out why people do the stuff they do. Uh, we, this is only a half-hour show, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure Jonathan, with a great deal of brevity and hopefully some levity, can uh, address some of these topics. Jonathan, thank you for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Yeah, really happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. It is still only a half-hour show, so let's get to it. <laughs> well, where can we start? Because you uh, were relaying to us earlier that you started out your day on a 6 a.m. conference call to Germany because you are a global consultancy. Uh, what kind of uh, topics are clients reaching out to you for, Jonathan, going, hey, we need help with what? Yeah, so what was really interesting and in how I began the discussion this morning, which was around risk management and business continuity planning, is that six or 12 months ago, we couldn't for the life of us get our clients to talk about risk management or business continuity planning. The, the challenge is there's a lot of other supply chain topics that will yield short or midterm P&L impact. And risk management yep. and BCP only – well, they're never going to make you money. And the best case scenario is if they, they save you money if something really bad happens. So when you've got competing priorities and you've got limited resources, not a lot of people are very interested in talking about planning for the downside. Needless to say, uh, COVID has changed the perspective on that. Uh, and now we're having no shortage of people wanting to talk about, hey, what should I do to plan for crisis? Now, ironically, obviously, we're in the middle of it. There's not a lot you can do to plan for it. But um, if, if there are any silver linings to what obviously is, uh, is a terrible pandemic, it's that we're finally getting some people who should for a long time have already been talking about risk assessments and risk management to be really looking at where the sources of risk are in their supply chains and, and beginning to look at um, mitigating or countermeasures before the next thing hits. From the uh, people that you've been talking to and uh, people coming out of the woodwork saying, I need help. I need help. Show us the way. Are these yeah. more of larger, mid-size, or even small companies? It really runs the gamut. Um, it, with respect specifically to risk management, I, I think there's a little bit of um, a false perception, and in fact it came up on, on my call this morning, that you need to be a big corporation to really have the resource to, to do something about it. But I think, I think if you step back, and really uh, look at what we're actually saying. I mean, it, it, we're not talking about necessarily an ISO 22331 risk management assessment. It exists. It's big and complicated. What we're saying is 
if you're in the business of making something or if you're in the business of distributing something, it's incumbent upon you to know a little bit about what your, what your plans are if part of your production goes down, if part of your logistics goes down. It's, it's important that you, when you're making partnerships with outside vendors, be they raw material suppliers or, or freight forwarders or logistics, understand what their mitigation plans are so if they go down. A great example is uh, the number of healthcare systems and hospitals that were caught short with a shortage of PPEs. I think any of us in the supply chain space with any kind of procurement background, we're all kind of scratching our heads going, this seems like kind of mission critical material. How on earth do you run out of this? And how on earth do you only have a single supplier? Um, so I don't think you need to be uh, big or, or, or have deep pockets to, to make it an extremely complicated undertaking. I think it's just a matter of stepping back and, and, objectively looking at where all the potential sources of risk are in your supply chain and talking as an organization about what you could do to mitigate against it. Well, I think that uh, from my point of view is uh, things have changed with regards to risk management. And uh, to give you an idea, uh, which we're all experiencing everything from COVID to hurricanes to uh, elections and all the rest of it, Several, three, four, five years ago, we had, uh, which hurricane was that, Tim, do you recall, that we had here? Oh, Sandy. Sandy, right. We had uh, Hurricane Sandy here, and our uh, facility, our manufacturing and office facility for All Metals and Forge Group, which is our primary uh, business, uh, was shut down by the New Jersey National Guard. And uh, mm-hmm. we were out of action for five days. Uh, after that, we decided, wait a minute, that's never going to happen again. So I think it was five years ago. And we put together a business continuity plan, that, like you were just talking about. And uh, we never had to use it until March. And in March 15th, I think it was, everyone went home and we were operational, you know, one hour later. So yeah, well, I think I, I think because we did we set up the system, we documented it, and so on. Now a lot of companies don't have the time for it. One, two, they don't have the people uh, in staff to help you do that. You got to bring in outsiders uh, such as yourself, and uh, I think that we now have to be uh, because of the time and uh, the era that we're in. I think we have to be looking at that these kinds of things could be happening all the time. So we need so you're to ab- You're think absolutely about, right. Right. We need to think about right. And I'll tell you this right now, and I don't know if Tim knows it, All Metals and Forges Group has been without telephones since 10 o'clock this morning. The phone company showed up and said, we have a claim that you're shut down. Phone line. And I said, we're not. Phones are working great. Well, let me go check it out. Half hour later, he left, and we had no phones, <laughs> and still and still don't. So you maybe know, these what are he the was. Sorry. Maybe what he was saying is we're going to shut your phones down. You just don't know it yet. Well, yeah, that, that could be. That could be. So you never know when stuff is going to hit you. You know, broadside. Lou, you, you raised a really good point uh, around uh, risk being not a black swan event, but 
but a certainty. We're not sure when, um, but we know that with globally extended supply chains, we're introducing risk from a multitude of sources now, and we will, over the course of the life of a business, encounter business continuity events more than once. So the idea that an organization is too small or too busy to bother managing risk is, is something that, unfortunately, I, I have to reject. I think as, as leaders, we've got a fiduciary responsibility to our organizations to ensure that we've taken whatever steps we can against assessing and mitigating risk. You need to only look at the last 20 years to, to look at, I mean, the government reaction to and the impact of COVID is certainly unprecedented. And I'm using the word in the sense that it's supposed to be, be used. But the idea of a global pandemic is by no means unprecedented. Over the last 20 years alone, we've had Ebola, Zika, avian flu, swine flu, um, West Nile virus. And, and all of these things, when they started, had the potential to become global problems. And that's just pandemics. We had the port strike in Los Angeles, the port strike in Santiago. We had a tsunami in Sendai and a nuclear meltdown. I mean, you don't have to have a very long memory to recognize there are risks to supply chains everywhere. And, and, and pretending you're somehow going to be immune is, is frankly corporately irresponsible. You're such a cheery guy. I mean, <laughs> you're right. All these things are, and one thing you left out, what does the future hold? It could be a Absolutely. lot worse. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it will be. I, I hope from each of these events we learn and we improve. That would be well, novel. <laughs> yeah, that, um, that remains yeah. to be seen. Yeah, particularly if it were the, the government for trying to learn from and improve, because they, they don't have that history, I don't think. Um, I just want to have you, Jonathan, give is our listeners almost, kind of it. Is that almost political? Because we don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'm not going to wade into foreign politics. <laughs> no, when, when we slam everybody at the same time, it's not political. Okay. Only if it's okay. party specific. <laughs> um, North Find Management, which, by the way, folks, you can find at north-find.com. Jonathan, give our listeners kind of a broad brushstrokes of what North Find Management does, because it's more than business continuity. Yeah, sure. Uh, in fact, um, we began life as uh, supply chain management consultants, uh, and, and we looked at supply chain from, from the top to the bottom, so from strategic sourcing and procurement to uh, demand planning, demand sensing, um, promotions and lift analysis, supply planning, shop floor execution, inventory management, uh, and, and then final mile delivery and network design. So everything that has to do with supply chain and, you know, in, in the early days, nothing we felt that didn't, but, but increasingly um, over the years, there's been other elements of supply chain that are a little bit more, let's say adjunct that we've, we've also begun getting into because of uh, just the, their mission criticality. One of them is risk management and business continuity planning. Um, Cause I think that needs to be a cornerstone of, of operations, best practices. And another one is FP&A, uh, financial planning and analysis. And, and this is where I think our approach to supply chain is a little bit different than, than some others. Um, we have a lot of folks on our team who are practitioners first and foremost, but also have finance backgrounds. So rather than just doing things from a supply chain standpoint because it's a best practice, uh, we've always tried to tie it to direct P&L impact. 
And for that reason, uh, a lot of the clients we work with are, are looking for more robust financial modeling based on some of these, these operations projects. So we've also added uh, an FP&A practice. So SP&A, go over, because I'm, I'm looking at your website and I'm looking at some uh, notes you were kind enough to provide to us, and, and I'm interested in the sales and operation planning and the demand okay. planning and forecasting. If you just want to drill down each of those, because I, I think uh, kind of getting an understanding for our listeners will help them understand, oh, gee, um, I do have to do some work to plan for the unexpected. Yeah, well, uh, the two areas you've, you've targeted, um, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, uh, happen to be my, my two focus areas, uh, sales and operations planning and demand planning. Um, so I love talking about these ones. Sales and operations planning, for, for your listeners who aren't aware, is uh, it's not a new concept. Some consultants are, are trying to sell it as a new concept that they've rebranded IBP, but in fact it's it's a 40-year-old um, framework for decision-making in organizations that attempts to bridge the uh, often uh, apparently unbridgeable gap between sales and operations. What it's effectively doing is, is providing a framework to allow an organization to effectively meet its customers' needs, delight its customers, while doing so in an operationally efficient way. And it does this by looking at demand and supply over a more strategic horizon. So over multiple months rather than, as, as a lot of more tactical organizations look at it, over the next few weeks or the next couple of months. Um, I'm cognizant of the fact we've only got a half hour to talk, so I'm not going to drill too deeply. But what sales and operations plan, uh, planning does is provide this collaborative framework that, that pulls disparate parts of the organization that are often siloed. So, for instance, sales and operations, but also finance, product management or product development, marketing, into this common framework that shares uh, a preset set of information and KPIs on a monthly cadence so that we're consistently talking about the things that all of these departments need to be knowing. And as a result, when things come up, we have the, we have the agility baked into the culture of our organization to respond not only much more quickly, but much more effectively and profitably. Uh, so that's SNOP in a nutshell. Um, I'm obviously biased, and, and, and I know you want to talk about behavioral science, and we'll get there. Um, one of my various biases is uh, because uh, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time demand planning, my focus in SNOP is, is really that for SNOP to be done well, you need to start with a really effective demand planning process. And that's one of the other things we, we work on with organizations, um, understanding that not every part is created equal, that not every part is going to forecast equally well using statistical means, that some parts are going to require human intervention and, uh, and, and business intelligence, while other parts, depending on what the, the variability of the demand for that part looks like, should almost in no circumstances be touched by a human because statistically it's always going to outperform a human input. So it's really educating clients around what approaches to use and where, and moving them away from the idea that we can have a one-size-fits-all approach to demand planning and forecasting for the entirety of their portfolio. So let me ask you a question. When you're dealing with a client and you're hitting some of these very, very high-level, uh, brainy uh, uh, issues and problems and solutions to deal with, 
uh, and I would presume that you're dealing with high-level individuals within the corporation, which would then, uh, I would believe, would cause uh, changes in operation and processes and the way people do business down at the floor level. Do you get much pushback? Yeah, one of the uh, one of the, the little infographics that we use usually early in engagements um, is a, is a pyramid uh, divided into three parts. Where at the top you've got tools, and then you've got process, and then you've got people, and and, and we say that really the the differentiating effect of each of these components of good SNOP, which are tools, process, and people, are, are not created equal. All three of them are critically important. You, you can't do it at an enterprise level without all three. But whereas a lot of organizations think if they go out and buy the, the latest and greatest software, all of their process problems and people problems are somehow going to be solved. In fact, oh, yeah. we, we, <laughs> we place about 10% differentiation on tools, 30% on process, and 60% on people. And the reason that is is because you know, you're absolutely right, Lou. I mean, we can come in with a PowerPoint presentation and say, hey, this is what good forecasting looks like, and this is what your forecasting looks like, and, you know, let's do something about the delta. But in real life, what that means is shop floor people or, or, or frontline people who have done things a certain way for a long time are going to be forced to do it differently. And you can't just, or you can, but you're not going to be effective if you just go to them and say, hey, you know, thanks for your service for the last 22 years. This is the way you should be doing it. I think change leadership is probably the most important part of the secret sauce of SNOP effectiveness. You need to be able to explain Amen. to those. I'm sorry? Amen. <laughs> sorry for yeah. the interruption, but amen. <laughs> um, I, I, I think it, it's, it's a matter of showing them, you know, what's in it for them. That, hey, we, we've, got a, we've got a process that differs from yours, and – Yes, there's probably some things that you, you might want to do differently, but at the end of the day, this is going to benefit you. It's going to free you up from a lot of the rote activities that we can probably standardize and even automate and free you up to do more interesting creative work that's going to be of a greater value add to the organization. You know, these are all great and beautiful words, and I agree with you. So I'm going to share with you a short, very short story um, and that is that when we, All Metals and Forge Group, which is the uh, uh, the company that drives Manufacturing Talk Radio and the other yep. five podcasts, is that um, we, in 1994, we became ISO registered. Uh, I presume that you probably know what ISO is. Yes, yes. It's a you know, quality standard program and so on. And it, it was pushed back from day one till the day that we got the certificate in the mail. And everybody, you know, they're bellyaching and so on about, you know, why do we have to do it this way? Why do we have to do it that way? And so on. And that day we got in the mail the certificate. For, of registration and mm -hmm. we had one salesperson in particular who managed to get a phone call from a client in Appleton Wisconsin and said I need to buy X Y and Z forging but you have to be an ISO registered company <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well that changed the course of the next 30 years 
Yeah. So that uh, that was an easy conversion, but but I think most companies still would have a problem with uh, ISO and some of these other things that you're talking about. Um, but I I think that upper management is becoming more swift on things that they have to do because of the things that are going on that are going on that are working against us. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the pace of change in general has accelerated. Um, you know, whatever part of business you're looking at, I, I'm uh, I'm working on a book right now that we're expecting to to launch in the spring that looks at the major milestones in the development of um, business forecasting. And it's really interesting when you look at how these milestones are spread apart. The first couple are are a couple of thousand years apart, and then they become a few hundred years apart, and then a hundred years apart, and then a couple decades. And the last few chapters, you know, we we see things happening almost on a yearly basis now. And for organizations to compete, that's the way that management needs to be looking at change as well. They, they, can't, they can't be laggards for as long as they used to be able to be laggards. Well, I, I agree with you that you can't be a laggard. Uh, it was back in the 90s when all the technology really started exploding and companies were realizing that they had to change and motivate and, uh, you know, if you don't change, you die and all of those things. And I, I yeah. think that was in the 90s. That was uh, 30 years ago. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. 30 years <laughs> ago, and I think now... I think now that uh, people and management and organizations are more uh, agreeable that they've got to change. Yeah, I think people change. have just grown up in, a, in, a, in an environment where change is more normal than it used to be. Well, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Um, so this is a very interesting time that we're living through where almost every day, now I, I, my company, All Metals and Forge, plus I got, we have six podcasts all about manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, so we have a very busy, busy schedule. And if I sure. tell you when the phones go out four hours ago, <laughs> it gets you crazy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's no way to plan for that, right? Yeah. I think what's very interesting, uh, and I'm going to attempt to segue here into behavioral economics because I know you wanted to talk about it, um, yeah. is that a, a lot of the change that we're talking about now is is um, rooted ultimately in technology. And that technology has has facilitated a pace of change that in the past wasn't possible. And, and technology has facilitated a scope or scale of change that wasn't possible in the past as well. But and within this, some people have angst about, you know, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the individual? What does it mean for humanity? And, and what I think is really exciting about the time we're living in, but more importantly, the more we're learning about behavioral science, is that there's no getting around the fact that, that our place in the world is changing. But that needn't necessarily be a bad thing. Um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who are uh, sort of the – the, the fathers of behavioral economics, um, and, and Kahneman, as, as many of your listeners will know, won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2002 for his pioneering work in the field. Um, really wanted to understand 
why using a classical model of decision making so often do economists have to call the people who are not fitting into the models irrational um, I've got an economics background so I can laugh at it as well but you know we would build these models and and they would explain you know various parts of, of, of human decision making and, and, and business and, and economics obviously but the pieces that wouldn't fit in we wouldn't say, oh, something's wrong with the model. We'd say, well, this is irrational consumer behavior, or this is irrational human behavior. Tversky and Kahneman wanted to understand, you know, if we're building these big, complex models that we're going to automate with AI and big data and the rest of it, you know, why are there still these pieces that aren't, that aren't fitting in properly? And what it comes down to is classical economics and the classical understanding of decision-making are based on the premise that humans, when, when, when faced with, clear value-based decisions will naturally choose the one that has the greatest value to them. And that makes sense intuitively. But in reality, we often don't do that. In reality, we, we make choices that don't fit that model. And, that, and that's where behavioral economics comes into play. The reality is because of environmental factors, even because of evolutionary factors, I mean, the way that our brain evolved we're the only animal that has a prefrontal cortex. And this part of the brain is the part of the brain that allows us to think about the future and allows us to make abstract thoughts and ascribe value to the future. No other animal has that, but it's only done developing in humans by our early 20s. So we don't have that much practice thinking rationally about the future and making objective future-based decisions because we've spent a good part of our lives by that point using the other part of our brain, which is very reactive. That's just one of the reasons that we carry with us the unconscious biases we do. But we've got hundreds of them. We inherit them from our parents. We inherit them from our surroundings. We, we get them, like I said, evolutionarily. And beginning to understand some of these unconscious biases unlocks some of that behavior that doesn't fit into some of the models that we'd love to automate. So connecting it back to that original thought, what I think is exciting about behavioral economics is that what, with a more complete understanding of what kind of decisions computers are best at making, it needn't be frightening for humans to begin to step away from that type of work and be, become better at the type of work that we are good at, which is, you know, asking the very creative and important questions that you can then turn technology loose on coming up with the answer to. Um, bringing in business intelligence and judgment to those, to, to the planning of parts of the business that looking at history isn't going to provide you good insights into. There, there's always going to be a place for humanity. It's just a matter of having the willingness to be able to, to change how we approach business. So let me, let me just present to you something that uh, is happening, occurring today. Today is what, September 23rd, I think it is. T yep. Tonight, tonight, is 2020 SW, it's an asteroid, astro, astro, asteroid that is coming within 17,000 miles of the Earth, which is closer than some of the satellites. So it's okay. one of the closest endeavor, endeavors that we're going to have in watching this uh, school bus size asteroid to see whether or not we're going to survive it <laughs> or is this going to be the end? So uh, we ha we have to we can't think about this. We can't come up with a solution. It's beyond our capability. You have you have a lot of issues here that uh, 
you are looking to solve problems and fix things within organizations. But then I guess the point that I'm raising is that you just never know what's going to happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this quote without any evaluative statement on the person who said it, uh, and, and your listeners will, <laughs> will know who it is because uh, he was political. Um, but uh, a fairly famous U.S. government administration person uh, in the early 2000s said, uh, we, we have the known knowns, and these are the things we know we know. We have the known unknowns, and these are the things we're aware that we don't yet know. But the really dangerous things are the unknown unknowns. And, and that's the stuff like the school bus asteroid that goes flying by or, or doesn't go flying by. Um, and uh, you're absolutely right. But there's always going to be this, this part of the environment that's, call it stochastic or known unknown. But that doesn't need to interfere in, in us doing the best we can with, with the known knowns and the known unknowns and, and, and making the effort uh, – to, to bring more of that unknown unknown into the, into the category of the things we do know. You're right. I mean, we, we're never going to be 100% right. We're never going to be anything close to it. But I also think we, we don't need to be. We just need to be better than we were yesterday. I agree with you, and uh, that works. Of course, the uh, 2020 SW asteroid, uh, that's going to be, uh, uh, it's going to be interesting um, as to what happens by tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're hearing this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio, we we're still here, folks. <laughs> I was reading that last night. I was reading a whole report from NASA, and I, I got scared. I said, oh, my God, look at all the work i got to do before Thursday. Before impact. Yeah, <laughs> yeah th this is this is a, a a typical behavioral science bias that is. I see it's two. It's the recency bias as well as the availability heuristic. And as humans, we're, we're animals that are over influenced by recent information. I mean, if I hear there's a school bus sized asteroid flying by, and I'm hearing about it a lot, this thing is weighing on me. Even though the reality is, I probably have a thousand times more likelihood, or more than that, a million times more likelihood of dying by getting into the car that's sitting in my driveway. But <laughs> this, this is this is the power of media because this is the way the human brain works. The more often we hear a message, the more important we think it is, even if that doesn't hold up to rational thought. <laughs> don't, don't worry about the school bus. We're going to be okay. Uh, we'll be all right. I, I, call me tomorrow. We. <laughs> I want to make sure you're all right. Well, that's a no-lose proposition for me, right? If we made it, I was right, and if we didn't, you're not around to call me out on it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. Well, Jonathan, we appreciate you joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Just take a minute, if you would, to kind of sum up and uh, remind our listeners where we can find North Fine Mint. Sure. So, uh uh, like you said earlier, we're at uh, north-find, N-O-R-T-H-F-I-N-D.com. And, I mean, over the course of this half hour, we've covered a lot of different topics um, very quickly. But if any of your listeners are interested, we have a whole series of white papers and presentations available for download so they can, uh, they can make use of some of this material in their own organizations. 
That sounds well, great. And uh, when we post this on our, our website, perhaps you ought to send us some links, and we'll be happy to post them uh, right under your player. That'll be really great. Yep. And we've been speaking with Jonathan Carlson, who is the CEO and co-founding partner of Northvine Management, a global consultancy of management practitioners with a passion for turning insights into action. You heard a bit of what they do. You can go to their website and find out more at north-fine.com. And while you're going to websites, go to jacketmediaco.com, where you will find all of the podcasts produced by Jacket Media including this podcast, Manufacturing Talk Radio, the WAMS podcast, which talks about women in manufacturing, Where's Willie, which is William Miller traveling the country, talking to us from the floor of the factory to find out what's going on there, Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Walden, who talks about the economy in manufacturing, Hazard Girls, and Full Time with Amy Nicholas, a fascinating show that talks about that very difficult work-life balance. And for all of you, thank you for listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.